On January 22nd, Premier David Eby of BC announced phase one of British Columbia's new critical minerals strategy during a speech at AME Roundup in Vancouver. This is obviously a huge step forward for BC as a jurisdiction into a sustainable decarbonized future that looks to be more and more defined by access to the critical minerals needed to build that future. Uh, BC is obviously a global leader in mining. There's an estimated 35,000 people that are employed in that province in the mining and exploration sectors. Uh, tens of billions of dollars of economic activity is spurred by it. 16 of Canada's 31 critical minerals are found in deposits in BC. And so I just thought it'd be an interesting uh, exercise here to bring on someone who is will be no stranger to my listeners and, and who has some interesting and no doubt uh, you know, subject-specific thoughts to provide for us. But yeah, Chris Taylor is going to be joining me here to explore this news release, maybe what it did and what it didn't entail, and maybe just its ramifications for mining the province in general. And so yeah, Chris, thank you for your time. And, and how are you today? I'm doing great, Matthew. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, no, and I, I always enjoy your conversations. You're an articulate and candid man, and I, I'm hoping that this can be a, an interesting conversation for people. I'll try not to put you on the spot too hard. So uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> start with a brief overview here, right? I mean, January 22nd, like I said, phase one of the new critical mineral strategies released. There's 11 total points. I think that you can kind of condense it down into just kind of five or six talking points here. And so I'll, I'll run through these and then I'll, I'll pass it off to Chris for a couple of questions on that. But so BC plans to start a critical minerals project advancement office to help companies work through the development process, plans to invest in geoscience, critical mineral infrastructure, and even the projects themselves, rather, as well as targeted incentivization programs, uh, increased training initiatives for skilled and unskilled mining jobs, promoting BC's ESG advantage, working more closely with First Nations and reforming the Mineral Tenure Act. And so I think we're, we're going to touch on all of these in some way, shape or form, I think, as we go here, Chris. Uh, but maybe just again, kind of starting, you know, nice, broad 30,000 foot view. What sticks out to you uh, as particularly positive based on what your understanding of the release? Well, Matthew, the, the first point here that I would highlight as being positive is that there is genuine interest now on the the part of politicians, and this is like at a provincial level here in British Columbia, but also at a federal level in Canada, of bringing forward like these sort of critical mineral, mineral strategies. And, and generally, that's just a support of exploration. That's a support of mining. And as somebody that's been in the industry here in Canada and internationally for a long time now, uh, I'd say that that's a very good, uh, you know, it's a very good gesture to receive from the government is that they're going to be supportive of uh, these sort of initiatives. I think for a long time, uh, there's been uh, what I describe as a, it's a very sad uh, absence of knowledge in the general public that mining is an active industry uh, in Canada or in uh, any particular province. I often encounter that when I'm traveling internationally and tell people what I do for a living and they'll say, oh, we didn't know that we mined anything uh, in these jurisdictions. And I'll say, oh, actually, you know, it's a major producer of, you know, X, Y, and Z commodities. And so I really like to see that the government is speaking publicly uh, in a clear way that they're supportive of these sort of initiatives. And, you know, that's a, that's a sea change uh, in, in Canadian politics. Hmm. And that's interesting. That's actually going to be closer to the end of our conversation. I want to talk about the that the battle for the hearts and minds, so to speak, or that public outreach, as you're as you're phrasing it. But I think let's let's just keep that 
for now uh, set aside, uh, maybe what's missing. So, I mean, I, I was reading, you know, in, in my research for this, I was reading about other kind of critiques or criticisms and people were maybe hoping to see more specific regulatory yeah. financial, financial incentives, right? I mean, this is phase one. It's obviously going to be very high level, I guess, from you, though. And so this is maybe, you know, take this question where you have to take it to have a productive answer. But, you know, I guess I could ask you what was missing that you would hope to see or failing that maybe, right? If you kind of were are happy with what you what you have found, what is the biggest gap or strategy that, you know, what's the biggest gap that needs to be built to be traversed that you're concerned might not be successful at the current moment? Well, you know, if you'd ask, if you'd asked me this question, um, say 15 years ago right now, I would be, um, or 20 years ago, oh boy, time really passes uh, pretty quickly, <laughs> but I'd be uh, maybe up at the Red Chris uh, deposit in Northern British Columbia. And I'd tell you that what we needed uh, most direly was infrastructure you know, connecting uh, some of these mineral deposits to the uh, the hydro grid, for instance, so they have power uh, to sort of operate more cleanly, more cost effectively. But right now, I'd say from a political perspective uh, here in British Columbia, uh, what you'd really like to see is some clarity around the relationship with uh, First Nations interests and in the different areas of the uh, province and really a sorting out of uh, what benefits accrue to who, who's part of the decision making process and uh, a lot of clarity on those uh, elements because you know it's a very different legislative environment than it was uh, 10 or 20 years ago uh, when I got going 25 years ago I guess now um, in this industry because uh, you know now we've brought in sort of uh, UN drip uh, criteria that are being um, there's attempts to integrate that into Canadian law and this means that you know we've instigated some of these policies like free and informed consent when we're uh, interacting with First Nations who have traditional claims on certain territories those are the sort of things that I really want to see straightened out uh, within uh, government and uh, within industry, because both on the industry side, where we just want to get projects built, we want to make discoveries, we want to get the work done, we want to take investor money and efficiently convert it into drilled meters in the ground. And on the First Nations side, where they want to see a good stewardship of the land and they want to see economic benefits accruing to the people that are impacted by the projects. Everybody needs clarity in these situations. And uh, I just don't see that right now uh, within policy, unfortunately. And that's interesting, too. We will maybe I'll push that ahead here. I have a couple more questions. I, I will we'll just to finish off this overview kind of t uh, topic. But th that 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 uh, the First Nations aspect that you discuss is, is on our list here today. And I think it's interesting you discuss kind of that how you know, philosophically it's easy to express, like you say, United Nations declarations of rights, indigenous people under it's easy to express support but turning that philosophy into meaningful, concrete regulatory procedure is a very difficult and challenging task. But we'll get to that, though, right? So I just want to let's, let's finish off my overview here. We'll, we'll skip to that in a second. But uh, I mean, let's just talk about you talked about kind of political support. I mean, so obviously, if anybody knows the Canadian political landscape, NDP, the Dippers, they're the ones that you would suggest would be most opposed to mining and exploitation. David Ebby is an NDP premier. So you're seeing that support from what you would call it from the left would be more traditionally oppositional. I mean, are there issues? I see, you know, the, the BC United or the, the liberals that do the new, the new United party upset about the carbon, the, the, the carbon tax, right? Uh, from your vantage point, I guess, is there a risk that this critical mining strategy might become a political football or do you see sincere and genuine buy-in across the spectrum? You know, 
we could get into a very deep in the weeds discussion about general <laughs> left versus right politics and the changing sort of voter base and within the NDP. I mean, uh, the NDP in Canada was very traditionally like uh, a labor-based party. Like these are mm. the people that were heavily involved with unions, labor jobs, blue collar jobs, the kind of jobs that you'd see in the mining industry, the forestry industry, auto workers, this sort of stuff. And uh, there's a little bit of a detachment uh, that I sense in some of that politics, like the, the left politics has really become uh, a little bit more around protectionism, socialism, and some of these other items, uh, more isms uh, than there would have been traditionally within these groups. So um, that's a whole separate discussion uh, that I don't think we need to embark on right now. Um, you know, uh, BC oscillates between uh, what used to be called the Liberal Party uh, and and the NDP, uh, basically being the parties in control. Uh, there hasn't been like a, a strong Conservative Party uh, in provincial politics for a very long time. Uh, so what we're looking at here, again, uh, the Liberals are now called uh, the United Party, I believe. Um, I have to get up to date on my political uh, rhetoric here, uh, but um, you know, I've I've attended mine openings uh, by uh, different um, different government officials over the years, and you know, there's always there's always lip service uh, that there's support for the industry, and then there's policy uh, that's supportive for the industry. And uh, some of these policy announcements that you brought out recently, like there's a little bit of a, a red flag uh, with me in that we had a policy announcement that was basically made public, uh, not through press releases or, um, you know, other clear to understand media formats. But there was a PowerPoint presentation, which I've looked at on, uh, I'd say, a relatively obscure government website that I had never experienced before. And uh, here it had sort of these um, aspirational changes to uh, the mining law and implementation of uh, the mining law here in British Columbia. And, you know, it's very sparse on details. Uh, it's not really getting a lot of front and center press that way. And uh, it's trying to integrate, again, the UN drip policies with, uh, you know, provincial and Canadian law. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'd be the first one to say about that. I, in my life, I've read a lot of legal agreements. Usually these are around, um, you know, mineral title access or exploitation, something like that. But um, there was a great note that was put up by a Macmillan, the law firm, uh, when these sort of policies were announced. And, um, you know, I was reading over... It was the gambit. Like I, I always make sure when I do a reading about politics or the news that I read from the left and I read from the right. So I get both sides of the equation. And I think if you're reading uh, these policy change announcements from a left perspective, you're looking at something that seems largely procedural. And uh, maybe this is implementing, you know, more policies, more check boxes. I've heard uh, commentary from uh, some of the First Nations groups that they think it'll be uh, detrimental uh, to getting things organized and getting benefit agreements in place. Uh, that's just, uh, you know, one side of commentary. And then if you read uh, from the right, you'd think that this is apocalyptic. You know, some of these proposed changes, you know, that's probably the right term to use. Like suddenly the uh, people of the province will lose access to all their uh hitherto enjoyed rights. I think what you're going to have to have here is a long consultation process between First Nations, between the non-First Nations uh, public in British Columbia. And I really worry when I see announcements like this, that this is legislation that the government is trying to rush. You know, if th there's something that we do, I'm going to get off on a bit of a tangent and I go, hope that's okay. Yep. Go for it. You know, so uh, part of implementing UN drip policies in Canada is that concept of free and informed consent. You know, if I went in as a mining company into a Northern community in British Columbia, any community, and I put up uh, a poster uh, at the convenience store, I tacked it on the message board and I said, you know, 
We're going to have a meeting on uh, Wednesday night. Anybody that's interested in the project, come and show up. We'll give you some coffee and donuts and, and away you go. Um, that would not be perceived uh, legally as free and informed consent because I have not actively reached out and tried to engage the community and really tried to get everybody involved. Now, when I see the BC government posting uh, an announcement about major policy changes, uh, you know, sort of tucked away on a website with no details uh, incorporated in that information, that seems to me like the equivalent of tacking up uh, a notice about a community meeting, you know, in the convenience store entryway bulletin board. Like, you're going to need to have real discussion between First Nations people and the non-First Nations population of BC if you're going to implement major changes like this. Uh, this isn't the sort of thing that could be rushed. And I worry a little bit, like, uh, you know, there's been court rulings that uh, the BC government would have, say, 18 months to begin uh, to begin solving these sort of like reconciliation-based uh, sort of equations in administering land. Well, I think what we're headed into here is another election cycle in BC. And I worry a little bit that uh, the government is trying to get a solution in place rapidly, legislation in place rapidly in this spring session without enough uh, informed consent from the non-First Nations population in BC who this does affect, and indeed rushing the First Nations to try to uh, ram some sort of uh, change through at the same time. I think it's a rushed process, and I think people need to be careful so that we get the right legislation in place that benefits all parties. Another classic example of how a four-year election cycle can submarine otherwise reasonable efforts, right, that, that last and take longer to, to produce than, than a four-year cycle, right? That's sort of that short-circuited approach to these things. And I agree. I mean, if your BC is looking to essentially rebuild the whole uh, the whole foundation of their of their mining exploitation industries, and, and and it's not something that should be taken lightly, and it should require, as you say, free and informed uh, consent from from every community involved. And I think that, I mean, so like you say, we will transition here and discuss this for a second. Um, I do want to, yeah, there's one more question I might swing back to here, but I, I think for me, the tension, you know, it, it does lie in not knowing, right? And this, for me, it could just be a, you kind of made it into a kind of a, a political spectrum issue. And I think that's an interesting kind of conversa conversation or, or, or point to make. But for me, it could just be a reasonable additional layer of bureaucracy, or it could be totally oppressive and just totally kind of blow up the entire process as we know it, right? And, and the tension lies in not knowing, right? Um, and so for me, I, I think about, BC's First Nation communities, right? And of course, I know that they're huge and diverse geographically and population-wise, so there's no blanket statement to be made here. But, you know, based on my understanding, and I think that you would agree here, that there is significant support in many communities and in hereditary and elected leadership positions for resource exploration and extraction. It's just a matter of of responsibility into doing so, and then a matter of how that pie gets sliced up and divvied up, right? And so the attempt to marry those concepts with UNDRIP, it's not, it's not, necessarily or does not have to be revolutionary, but the risk is that it could be. And when that's rushed, it becomes a damaging thing. I guess, I mean, do you want to discuss, I have more particular questions as we go here, but just generally speaking, do you want to give your your perspective as Chris Taylor boots on the ground in, in BC on, on, you know, if you wanted to maybe discuss uh, how much support versus opposition is, is it kind of couched in hesitancy on by both sides, right? People in the middle of, of not sure what to believe or, or not sure what to think on the matter. But what do you see when, when you're engaging in community consultation with First Nations communities themselves? Like you say, from Red Chris all the way down, you know, down south to, 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 uh, to Kodiak. What do you, what have you seen? Well, you know, maybe, maybe the best way to express this is anecdotally. And, um, 
you know, I've been fortunate, like the, the big gold project that we sold to Kinross uh, two years ago now, uh, which is in Ontario, um, I sat through a number of, I would describe them as relatively terrifying meetings over the course of my career. And people would imagine that those terrifying meetings are with the CEOs of big mining companies. But I'll be honest, like some of the most terrifying meetings are when you're trying to get to know a group of strangers sitting across the table from you, typically, like you're physically sitting, at, you know, in a community across the table. And, you know, you, you, you know, you have a lot of um, your own personal uh, efforts and interest and financial commitments, and you have investors and everybody else uh, relying on these meetings to go well. And you can't rush it. Like you can't, you can't go through a process where you really get to know each other as human beings within, you know, a, a couple of two hour meetings. Like you've got to take the time out. You've got to visit repeatedly. You've got to get to know people on a personal level. Um, and, you know, when I bring in that element of fear, some of the smartest people that I've dealt with are First Nations people. And uh, one of the guys that I remember very distinctly was uh, a chief of one of the communities that we were dealing with. And the guy is uh, formally educated as an accountant. Uh, he can do mental math at about five times the rate that I can. Right. So I'm always at a disadvantage when I'm talking to him about benefits on an agreement. And, you know, the benefit that that brings to the community when he has the ability to rapidly work through uh, the pros and cons of what's being approached or being proposed. And, um, you know, he's got a really good leg up on discussion. I mean, these are people every level uh, when I work with First Nations. I always find people that I respect in their capabilities. And sometimes that's traditional knowledge. I've had guys absolutely put me to shame, you know, in a fishing competition. I've had uh, guys showing me like, you know, the land use, like the history of the land use, like just fascinating information, um, you know, even extending to like spiritual practice. Um, one of the chiefs that I was uh, friends with, and uh, you know, I don't see him enough now that we're not working on the project, but I would still love to, um, you know, he's a spiritual leader for his community. And I had some of the most interesting discussions of my life with this gentleman. So there's a lot to learn when you have the time to sit down and make meaningful exchanges, you cannot ram through changes in legislation or ways of interacting with communities, um, you know, and rush those sort of processes. It takes like getting feedback from both sides. So to take it back to your question, like, you know, I've had wonderful experiences dealing with First Nations people on the projects that I've been involved with. Sometimes you get uh, right into the weeds on the personal difficulties that, that some of these families have. And, and a lot of the communities that you deal with are remote. And when you're dealing with small remote communities, a lot of the times there's issues in those communities. We all know that. Like these are groups that are living in isolation and without a huge amount of money or resources. So that leads to problems. And we've seen that firsthand as well. So when you understand it on a human level, uh, you get a lot of the experience in both ways. And we try to provide those economic benefits if a project's being developed in an area where you can see, um, you know, you can see benefits flow to the community over a very long period of time if it's a, if it's a money project. So I've always, one of the things I, I've always supported with these groups is that I think, you know, there are mechanisms within the existing mineral tenure system where uh, there's nothing that would block First Nations communities becoming claims owners directly. There's nothing that stops them from, uh, you know, claiming land, claiming um, mineral titles specifically and administering those on their own behalf. And the I always think about it like so many of these guys are going through formal education now, like they're becoming geologists, they're becoming technicians. They're becoming lawyers. They're becoming accountants. And, you know, uh, these guys, like they're smart. 
They, they know the history of their community. They know their community's priorities. And every time I have these kinds of discussions where they could basically become administrators of mineral claims in their own area, they're very interested in the concept. So this is an area where I think there's a role for government to get involved and support those kind of initiatives within the existing legal framework and within the existing system. And ultimately, you know, if you have First Nations groups that own claims and are optioning them out and generating economic benefits from those, they have the ability to generate economic benefits directly. And that that is not a burden on government. That is not a taxpayer burden. That is a source of income where these groups can derive income from dealing with mineral exploration companies. That's something I would love to see explored more directly because these guys are very competent to administer their own lands. But that's not typically the way uh, that our government would look at it. We would look at it in a heavy, more of a paternalistic viewpoint where government needs to be heavily involved and, uh, you know, I don't know, it's a little bit condescending, but where government knows best and government is handing down the mechanisms to uh, administer these things. I think First Nations have a lot of capability to do that on their own. Where I come across it a bit differently is that I think that they have the ability to do that based on many interactions and conversations I've had within the existing system as well. And that's something that is very seldom explored. That's interesting because that paternalistic government knows best is uh, if you look at the history of precisely the issues that got us into this kind of mess in the first place when it comes to, to First Nations iniquity, right? So that's a, an interesting kind of through line there. I mean, I, what you were, you're already, you're, you're, you know, if we're putting a pin in this conversation already and saying that this very challenging and, and complex discussion is being rushed in a way that could damage it, you know, if this is going to be this generational uh, opportunity could be damaged by rushing it. I mean, when, you know, I was thinking that, 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 you know, people that are engaging in good faith will engage with good faith, right? And there's that kind of to be quippy, right? And so when you, when you get, I, I can already see the risks that you're kind of articulating here is that if you have a government ramming down an arbitrary deadline to achieve election results or to, to make sure it's not an election issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that you could have these kind of unintend, unintended consequences as, as ripple effects through, you know, potentially de decades, right? I mean, how often does this opportunity come to pass, right? And so, yeah, already I think I, I see where your see where your head's at. Um, I think that maybe maybe my uh, my the question I have for you as a follow up to that, and I think you've already kind of alluded to it here with with even the kind of like uh, the the land claims become your own kind of prospector sort of aspect of it. I mean, so kind of a twofold thing, and so I'll, maybe I'll just start with part one is. Is that, I mean, if you, if you were, you know, the, the kind of the cliched, you know, God emperor for a day of, of BC's, uh, you know, new crew mineral strategy, you know, what, uh, what would you do? What, what would it look like? I mean, you know, again, I, I don't mean to kind of put you on the spot and make you maybe kind of step into hot water in a jurisdiction that you, you know, obviously are, are calling home right now, but what would the end solution be if you were trying to marry this idea of, you know, obeying or, or honoring kind of, UN drip kind of policy while still maintaining competitive advantages or competitive, well, BC compared to the world competitive advantages, what would it look like from your end? Or is that you've already articulated it? Well, I, I, would, I think I'd, uh, God Emperor, I mean, um, don't, don't tell any of my family uh, that idea. I mean, that probably get in some bad, bad discussions, but um, I, I read a good book once, God Emperor of Dune, you know, the old Frank Herbert series from like the... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, so if I could do it, there were some good policies we saw in Ontario, which was uh, some of the First Nations groups or most of them that I was uh, interacting with had very good experience with mining. And they had staff on hand who were GIS experts, uh, who were mineral title experts, 
um, who were administrating agreements, uh, administering agreements with uh, forestry companies, with mining companies, with uh, other groups that had different land use. And uh, these uh, these bands, uh, these these groups would basically have staff on hand that would be on top of all this. And it made it a lot easier to interact with because there were GIS databases that were assembled that were also administered by First Nations. They would have all the appropriate contacts with government. And I think if you establish groups of uh, GIS specialists, um, geologists, dare say, uh, with different, um, you know, with different First Nations groups, uh, these people would, uh, you know, um, for the, the relatively mineral, mineral, uh, minimal cost of like their salary and upkeep, uh, they would be intimately on top of land use in their area. They would be fully capable of, um, you know, staking mineral claims and administering those on their own, directly entering into mineral benefit agreements with groups or option agreements if they have a pool of properties that they would like to option out to exploration companies that could earn an interest on. Uh, so I think that initial investment, it's like the old story of like, do you give a man a fish or do you teach a man a fish to the man to fish? And in this sense, like, you know, if you have the technical expertise that are within the First Nations that can do all of these things, um, you know, then they have the ability to start being uh, economic drivers in their own rights. And that's what I would really hope to see is a higher level of that technical expertise uh, within the First Nations groups themselves. Uh, some of them are very well administered like that in BC right now. Uh, you know, won't get into names, but there are some groups that are very much on top of this and some groups that are very much behind. And the ones that are on top of it have very good economic benefits agreements, very clear pathways through permitting and consultation, and they're way ahead in terms of economic opportunity over the groups that are not. And I'd like to see all groups have these capabilities so that they can get into direct partnerships with industry and also so um, have better control. If there's issues in the in their uh, areas of traditional uh, land use that they know are problematic for mineral claims, these are things where they can have them out of uh, staking. You know, I think that's what they really would like. That is a, an aim. You know, in many cases, there are areas that they view um, because of, of, of ongoing and traditional land use as being like sacred or being very important to the community for one one use or another traditional uh, hunting methods, whatever it might be in each individual area. And, um, you know, we need to be able to respect those and they need to be able to control it. They, they should have more uh, ability to do that on their own without having somebody else tell them uh, how to do it. And I think the way to do that is to raise the level of expertise within, um, within each group. That's, and I find that really interesting. That's actually a very elegant solution to what could be a very complicated problem if we do this wrong, right? And, and it doesn't throw the baby boat with the bathwater and it allows pre-existing skill sets and knowledges to kind of just to, to puzzle piece fit in there quite nicely. No, I think I'll, I'll subscribe to your newsletter if you ever, if you ever start one, but I think that maybe my, my backup, my, my follow-up to that then is, so we have your uh, understanding, I think that has been kind of decently espoused now by you. But what about the government? I mean, and again, maybe this is, you know, water cooler talk kind of stuff. But I mean, have you heard rumors or whispers or do you have an understanding? I mean, you kind of articulated that you were, you know, you've expressed that you were, were concerned about maybe the approach being a little rushed and maybe a little paternalistic. Have you heard of potential new formats um, that maybe you are privy to, to explain with us right now? Well, I think David Eby's uh, discussion at uh, the Roundup was a good start, you know, talking about how uh, there'll be different organization and basically um, 
I don't know if it's so much construction or assembly of new branches of government that'll facilitate critical mineral exploration and uh, this sort of thing. So that's great. You know, these are uh, tools that we have partial access to right now within the existing system, um, you know, but they there's always room for improvement. So there's that. Um, so I think it's moving in the right direction, um, you know, but I think it's really uh, it's it's almost less on the government side than it is on, um, you know, empowering communities to do a lot of these things on their own. I think that's where I really, uh, you know, put my focus. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll put a pin that for now. And if we have come back to it, so be it right. It is a rather large and fundamental part of this conversation. But I just wanted to get to MABC, Mining Association of BC. They responded to the June 22nd phase one policy, they came up with their own kind of five listed demands. Um, and, and most of them, you know, faster permitting, more funding to first nations for land use decisions. That kind of fits into what you were saying there. Electrification investment, training skilled and unskilled workers. But maybe the one that, and this is where maybe we can go back to something you started talking about earlier in terms of Ontario's advantage. And so they talked about trying, trying to produce, now this is financially, and you were talking more about kind of a knowledge base, but maybe this is a conversation on both of these things, but a more competitive framework for BC mines and smelters compared to Ontario and Quebec. Uh, and so that was something that they had highlighted as there was a, a distinct disadvantage. Um, and so they were kind of circling the carbon tax. And this is, again, my concern is it's is a carbon tax. You know, is a carbon tax is one of those hot button controversies in Canada right now that I think it gets better or worse. It kind of, yeah, it gets, gets shoehorned into conversations, but if overarching conversation of, you know, financial uh, incentives or disincentives. I mean, is BC actually at a material disadvantage? My BC mines, BC smelters. I mean, for me, I mean, Ontario, BC, Quebec, it's all hydro or nuclear, almost entirely electric. So for there, it seems like it should be roughly the same, right? But I mean, is there, yeah, I mean, based on your knowledge you bring to this conversation without kind of making you go hit the books and go see the, the accountants do their job, but uh, is BC at a distinct material disadvantage in terms of their pricing for mining and smelting compared to Ontario, Quebec? It's a, it's a multi-pronged uh, answer to that. I mean, it's really comes down, like you mentioned already, Matthew, and that's, uh, that's hydropower pricing, right? Like what do you pay per kilowatt hour for electricity? And uh, you know, like, that's going to always be a deciding factor on the economics of any mine or smelting project, any major industrial project. So um, if you remember a few years ago, like this is maybe 10 years ago, getting into the whole discussion about the Site C dam, right? And, uh, you know, there was a lot of opposition to Site C going in in the first place. And I remember listening uh, to CBC while I was driving into work and hearing this discussion about how we'll never need this power. You know, the province will never need that amount more uh, of electrical power. And it was a, it was a really, uh, in hindsight, uh, a really dumb uh, statement to make. And I, you know, I can't remember what pundit it was saying that, but I, you know, I was looking at numbers, uh, recently and it's like, I think it's about uh, a third, uh, so 33% roughly of BC's power is now imported, uh, because we have a deficit of power. And, you know, some of these things like, um, you know, talking about, carbon pricing and municipal policies and other things like this. Well, I'm going through uh, home renovations now. I'm updating an older house here in Vancouver and uh, I want to put a suite in the basement because uh, we have enough space and it would be great because we have a lot of students that live in this area and it's a way that basically we can get, um, you know, 
kind of you're part of the solution to the housing problem. Well, part of that is that I have to replace a fully functional gas boiler with an electrical system. And that's part of the permitting because we want to be able to reduce our carbon uh, footprint. So the city requires it right now. The city is requiring us to replace a functional gas system with a, um, you know, uh, an electrical system when we're in a power deficit a power production deficit in this province, which will be partially improved by the time Site C comes online. So, um, you know, when you're bringing in uh, carbon-based policies, uh, you have to be careful that you're not implementing carbon-based policies before the grid, the infrastructure exists to be able to uh, basically uh, accommodate these policy changes. And, you know, it's very nice on the one hand to think about replacing, um, you know, we don't have like coal generation or anything like that of any significant effect here in BC anymore. I think it's like 93 or 94% of the uh, electricity generated is basically hydropower, right? You know, but when you're thinking about other provinces, other jurisdictions, uh, I don't want to wander uh, too widely on this, but I remember in the cold weather recently in Alberta, um, we have a cabin in Alberta um, and I had uh, issues. Again, I had a boiler break there because it was so cold, but the, the entire, uh, you know, renewable electrical grid based on wind power in Alberta shut down. It was like running at 0.01% of capacity because it was basically too cold. So you've got to be careful when you implement these changes to the grid uh, that you're going to end up with something that's actually reliable under adverse uh, weather conditions. And that's going to be an issue as we switch more to renewables. Now, BC doesn't really have that issue, but if we keep electrifying the infrastructure, we keep adding more electric vehicles and we uh, keep uh, bringing in lots more people every year. And these are all trends that we see ongoing. We've got to think about that infrastructure availability. Uh, and we've got to think about when we want to be implementing something like carbon pricing and uh, controls through municipal legislation on when people are upgrading to electrically based systems. If you talk to any contractor, any electrical contractor uh, in the city of Vancouver right now, they'll tell you that it's difficult to get these sort of electrical permits, uh, you know, expanded through the city. And uh, the wait times for processing these things are very long. And there's just a lot of strain on the electrical grid because of ongoing electrification. So maybe that's not an environment where you want to be making uh, changes to uh, sort of uh, carbon policy right now until some of the infrastructure is in place. And, you know, when you're thinking about large industrial projects, largely this comes down to pricing and it comes down to environmental regulation. And, uh, you know, you look at, uh, you know, the trail smelter here in B.C., uh, you know, trail has been in operation for a very long time. There is significant environmental impact in that area from those operations. Everybody knows that to be true. Uh, and you did be looking at then uh, from a competitive basis, comparing that sort of ongoing electricity pricing, environmental regulation versus other jurisdictions in Canada. I still think, you know, personally, as a Canadian, I want to see as much of that uh, activity take place onshore as possible under strict environmental regulation instead of just offshoring it to uh, Asia or other parts of the world where uh, it's going to produce uh, byproducts and pollution that aren't monitored and are quite harmful. It's all one planet after all we're all sharing. So I prefer to see that work going on, going on here. Um, you know, and I'd prefer to see the implementation of, say, carbon carbon saving policies to the point where our grids and other infrastructure can support those changes.
Well, it's well said, and you actually, you, you, I was just making find it on my phone here to confirm I still had it, but it was a conversation I was having with a follower of mine, and I'll pull up my soapbox here, and I'll try to be brief with this. But the <laughs> the, the the decarbonization thing, or the carbon the carbon credits, and the and our, our efforts to decarbonize our industries and the economy, I find it just to be really kind of deflating how much of a political controversy it's become because I don't think it had to be right. I think that if I, you know, if I said we could produce cleaner, more sustainable power, you know, without, you know, I mean, without any sort of deleterious side effects to the environment or, or to people's health, that's a good thing. Right. But as you kind of alluded to, and this is why I bring this up is that we've had this kind of philosophical approach. And this is a kind of, kind of returning to conversations we had 20 minutes ago at the start of this conversation, but where you, you have philosophy without any sort of necessarily uh, rigorous ties to reality and it's starting to kind of steer the boat. And so we're getting way over our skis in this, right? And so you have what I think is kind of objectively a good thing, clean energy and and et cetera, et cetera, but it's being implemented in such a haphazard manner and kind of being so, and again, kind of to, if we're, if there's a theme developing here, this sort of too rapid uh, and not uh, intentional enough sort of transition where it's just not being done properly, which is turning people that could be allies into opponents of it, right? Because they're seeing, like you just saw, what you just spoke to, like the Alberta's uh, power issues, right? And that sort of thing where, it, it, uh, you know, a, a concerted, intelligent, managed transition, I don't think you would get a whole lot of kind of ideological opposition, but now we've kind of, it's become such a controversy. It kind of makes me sad because it, it's making this a much more difficult, challenging thing to actually pursue now that we're actually maybe trying to put money, real money into it to try to actually make it happen, you know, five years after he said that it's going to, you know, the oil's dead and we'll never have to burn any more hydrocarbons ever again, right? And so now all of a sudden reality is kind of slapping us in the face. And yeah, just as like you say, as a personal side, right? Um, so maybe let's just, let's just, this kind of BC versus Ontario, Quebec, I'm trying to be wary of the time here, we're already kind of starting to stretch this to the point where I want to, I don't want us to get too too into the weeds, right? But are there other advantages? Like you say, I mean, you have some nice experience in Ontario you can kind of to draw on here. Are there things that Ontario does that you would like to see BC do? And this is on a very kind of general level, right? Not not in terms of any particular subtopic, but just generally, what does Ontario do with its mining exploration that you think BC can learn from? Well, one of the big advantages in uh, Ontario as a jurisdiction is like this um, generally settled land claims with First Nations. That's a great thing. And what it means is when you're going through a consultation process, you can go to the government and they'll tell you uh, at this stage, you're going to talk to uh, this First Nation and this First Nation and this First Nation. And largely it's based on a radius around the project. Like if you're looking at my beautiful face sitting in front of you here, say my eyeball is the project. And then your first consultation sphere is like my orbit of my eye socket. Your second consultation sphere is out like past my nose. And then as you get further to actually building a mine, you're consulting further and further because presumably the impacts are broader and broader. And uh, But you have a list, like it's specified who you speak to at each stage of the process. It's going to be your local First Nations. You're going to be speaking to the Métis at part of that uh, in most cases. Um, and then your, your communities, you're going to be uh, going out in scope like that. In BC, it's a little different. Um, you know, the issue here is that you have 203 different First Nations. You don't have a settled land claim scenario, right? So, and you have competing interests, like overlapping interests, like in, mm-hmm. in these traditional uh, areas of land use, they overlap. You know, there's connections between the different communities. Uh, people have moved from area to area. They use different areas at different times. So this might mean, and say that Southern British Columbia, you might have 20 or 30 different uh, First Nations that have overlapping land claims on an area, and these are not firmly defined. 
And the government will not step in in that process and tell you which of these guys are prioritized that you need to talk to. And you're interested in it as industry and the First Nations are interested in it um, as well. And the reason is pretty much the same. Like if you're going to produce a big mine, there's going to be a lot of employment. There's going to be a lot of direct economic benefit. There's going to be a lot of money produced out of the products that you're mining if it's a good mine, right? So you want to be able to split those benefits like fairly. And like, how do you do that? If you have to negotiate 20 or 30 different separate benefit agreements with the First Nations in the area of your project, who is the most impacted? Well, they're each going to have a different view of who is uh, most like closely benefited or impacted by the project. And those views are not going to reconcile with each other. So this could be very challenging, you know, uh, in order to advance a project and you want to do it fairly. Like you don't want anybody to get screwed over or left out in the cold on the benefits from a project when there's a legitimate, uh, you know, impact or legitimate benefit that they can that they can reap from that project. So you want to do it fairly and you'd really love to have, um, you know, government be able to tell you at these stages, you know, you you left out group, you know, the 17th group down the list. Well, you know, really, uh, there was no way to quantify the way that they're impacting or benefiting from that agreement. You, you can't you can't take a pie of benefit from a project and divide it up 30 different ways. That's very, very difficult. So you have to understand early on, like, you know, the company is taking the risk. The company is putting the investment interest in it. Its shareholders are on the line for that, right? And the First Nations communities that are directly or closely impacted by this, they're taking on the environmental risk. They're taking mm-hmm. on the responsibilities for, um, you know, um, you know, cooperation on those uh, ends on environmental monitoring and other things. And they have the benefit of having the jobs and everything else that's involved too. You want to be able to partition that fairly. So maybe take a page out of the Ontario book, give a prioritized list for consultation to smooth it along. And then one of the things you can do is the groups that are going to be closely impacted, they can have cooperative agreements in place where as the mining company, you go in and you say, okay, it's going to be these three groups or these five groups uh, that have a, a, a pre-existing cooperative agreement in place that we can sign an agreement on a mine benefits agreement with them. And uh, that's going to have a defined set of benefits and other opportunities and obligations uh, in there. And that would be a lot smoother. And that would be more like the Ontario model uh, for what we see. Huh. Interesting. No, thank you. That's one that I, I don't have a, a meaningful enough kind of body of knowledge to, to respond to. So I appreciate the kind of taking me to taking me to class here for a second. Um, I, I, I was going, I was debating setting this one aside, but I think it is worthy of inclusion. You know, there's a couple extra minutes here because for me, uh, you know, one of the questions I asked you was lip service versus taking things seriously. And obviously, I mean, you can tell someone's priorities based on how they spend their money, right? And really on a, on a personal, on a governmental level, right? What do you spend your money on, right? And then that tells you their priorities. And so, you know, for me, this, uh, and you'll see why I say this, but BC Hydro recently released their new, their, you know, refresh 10-year plan, evergreen 10-year plan here. Uh, $36 billion in spending has been announced on community and regional infrastructure projects in the province between 2024 and 2034, right? And so I think that I looked it up that BC's GDP is 270 billion. So you're looking at, I mean, obviously GDP is going to grow, you know, two or 3% per year, whatever, but it's a, it's a non, it's a not insignificant amount of money that, that it's being planned to be spent over a 10 year period, right? So for me, Good, right? There's a demonstration of that they're taking this seriously because, again, you just talked about it, right? The, the cost of power is a defining cost for mining. And so this ability, and this is, you know, 
governed subsidies, but not really governed subsidies. It's building out a governed infrastructure that benefits everybody in that area, right? But it's a 50% increase over the last 10-year plan. And it includes uh, 10 billion bucks for projects that include electrification, electrification and emissions reduction, right? So you, as a you know as a miner in BC, that has to be you know, a net positive objective good. And maybe I'll, I will just kind of streamline it down though. To, and there's other questions that I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice just to ask you: How does this funding work, right? I mean, for this is just maybe you know uh, permitting 101 or, or or government applications 101 for people. But how does this work? I mean, can individual projects, if you've got you know, you're 100 kilometers south of the Yukon border. Um, is this something that you apply for on an individual project level? Um, can you, and, and more generally, can you shed light on the application process in terms of turnaround time, selection criteria, rejection or acceptance rates? I mean, how, how much of a challenge is it actually to tap into these kind of pools of dollars? Well, I haven't gone through this uh, recently in British Columbia. It was a process when I was working at Red Chris for Imperial Metals back in 2000. Uh, uh, sort of 2005 to 2009. And uh, basically they, you know, at that point there was the, uh, what did they call it? The Northwest Transmission Line, or I can't remember the term of it, but it went up and actually provided like, uh, it ended up going in at the time that the mine was being built. And, you know, it was up to local communities and industry proponents to, to demonstrate uh, the economic advantages of having their um, projects plugged in. And ultimately, Imperial Metals at that time ended up paying for the last part of the transmission line extension up to their project on their own, right? So that was part of the uh, initial build cost. So unfortunately, Matthew, I can't give you any detail about uh, the BC process, but generally you would rank, um, you know, the economic benefits to the communities and uh, on a taxpayer basis to government, and they would be- make, um, you know, decisions accordingly. There was an ongoing like power line expansion in, in Ontario that we were dealing with with the Great Bear Project, which is uh, very much under, um, you know, that's how those gov- the government would look at it and they would look to the communities to show their need and they would look to industry to show uh, the advantages in terms of tax flow and other things by having the project built, right? That gives them an order of prioritization. Sure. Okay. And so there is, how significant, again, just based on your, on your knowledge base, how significant is uh, company input in that process? Well, it's very significant. Like company ends up having to produce uh, studies, you know, on their own dime to demonstrate like the advantages of their project going forward. Right. So there's a financial and time commitment on the company side. And, um, you know, it's quite time consuming to um, interact with uh, the different levels of uh, government and the power utilities on that side as well. It's a it's it's a multi-step process. Sure. No, thank you. Yeah. And complex. And, and like you say, not probably doesn't fit within this, the scope and scale of this conversation at this point either. Um, so two more questions here. And, and hopefully people's eyes do refrain your eyeball rolling if you're listening. But we're going to discuss kind of the ESG more specifically. I just think that it gets a bad rap, but I don't think it has to. I mean, it's one of those things where lip service kind of does more damage than it should. I mean, it's just best practice, right? If I said to you, do you want to, do you want your mind to conduct best practice? Then people will say yes, right? And it's just... But I mean, whatever. This is me again. This kind of I'll, I'll, I'll sidestep my my personal editorials too much. But then let's let's just I think we'll, we'll transition to the end then, uh, uh, Chris. And this is it's going to be you know we've got, I, what I appreciate is that and I kind of was looking forward to this that you have very actionable experience and and and, and a lot of wealth of knowledge and experience to draw from. And I appreciate this conversation from that perspective. But we're we're going to kind of reel it back to again a very more philosophical conversation here and and. and this idea of winning hearts and minds. There's, there's a significant uh, opposition, right? And I guess you might say that 
there's a pretty steep cutoff in the in the industry even right after Gen X right for involvement right there's a bit of a gray revolution uh, that threatens a lot of lost knowledge and ability and services as a, and serves as a potential kind of severe bottleneck for future programs. And I would say similarly that there's a similar drop off in support among younger generations. And you kind of yourself expressed this too earlier in our conversation for extractive industries. Um, And I see now at PDAC, there's even a short course on uh, how to attract millennials to your project, which I thought got a kick out of me. It's it's, it's not just slap some memes onto your Facebook page or on your Twitter account, but uh, (laughs) obviously that this can threaten the very ability of these projects and industries to move forward, right? And so, you know, if it's not obvious, I'll say it again, right, that I come at this from the perspective of someone who I do, I believe deeply in environmental and labor best practice. I don't want to see rivers poisoned. I don't want to see workers exploited. And I recognize that, you know, mining does have a pretty mixed history uh, in that way that stains its current reputation. And to be brunt about it, that's pretty fair at times, right? I mean, I'm looking in BC from the numbers I saw. There are over 1,800 abandoned mines in BC as of 2003, which is the stats mm-hmm. I can find, of which over mm-hmm. 1,100 pose public safety and health risks, right? And I mean, you've even looked back 2014, Mount Pauly, the tailings disaster. That's going to be a difficult thing for this industry to shake, right? But I would still argue, and this is something that you kind of talked about, you know, you go around the world and, and people don't even understand that Canada's a mining industry. This is something that, you know, that I, in my own friendship group, kind of, you know, you start beating your chest and pull up the soapbox again, right? But I mean, I, I really do, right? If you, if you, it's almost like a logical exercise for me, right? That if you, if you feel the need that we need to decarbonize our economy, but you also believe in maintaining best practice in terms of environmental and labor codes, the objective best place to build a mine is Canada. There's really no, there's nowhere else to build it than, than Canada, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not exploiting mm-hmm. child slaves in the Congo. You're not, you know, recreating Mordor in Indonesia for nickel, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. it's actually, it's occurring in a place where, and, you know, this is kind of the nature of Canada, that, that a lot of these projects are next door to marginalized communities. And this is a, such an obvious and incredible way for those communities to gain real economic benefits through increased consultation, through increased involvement, through, you know, meaningful life-changing wages, right? And, and where, you know, smart, well-executed government regulations, and you notice I added those qualifiers there based on our conversation, but can help avoid, avoid the risks of, of kind of unregulated extractive industries that we see in Indonesia or Congo, right? So, you know, there's my, that's my spiel, right? And I, you know, I, it's going to end with actually a pretty quick question. I mean, how do we win the battle for hearts and minds? How do we, you know, how do we get younger generations and outsiders more involved and more supportive? I mean, I've got a couple of ideas that I would be happy to kind of shout off at you too. But I mean, what do you think from general comments to specific initiatives? I mean, what are your thoughts on that topic? Well, number one starts at home, right? Um, everybody, every parent should explain to their kids where things come from. You know, if you're using a product in the home, explain what it's made out of and where that came from and what that means when you buy it right? What does your iPhone have in it? How many different metals? How many different plastics? What does that mean? Your your clothes that you're wearing, your raincoat, what's that made out of? Is your raincoat made out of a barrel of oil? Well, in a way it is. And people just don't understand that. So um, start at home, talk to your kids, uh, make sure that they understand when they're using something that it came from somewhere, it got manufactured somewhere. And, you know, in a sense, like we got to make sure as a society that our uh, younger generations grow up right? You know, there's a tendency amongst parents to coddle, right? And our society 
has a little bit of a tendency to coddle itself as well. And if you're going to use something, recognize the fact that it was uh, produced somewhere. And you don't want to onshore the benefit here and offshore mm. all the detritus and the, the problems, right? And that's what happens when you have extractive industries that don't operate uh, within uh, the West. Let's just say the West for the moment. So um, they benefited that way for a long time. Uh, companies have benefited by having cheaper labor and cheaper production in other jurisdictions. But the world is not not a safer, more stable place than it was 20 years ago. Uh, we're seeing geopolitical fragmentation around the world. We're seeing like increased like armament now. We have a ground war going on in Europe. We've got uh, all kinds of stuff going on in the Middle East in different places. It's pretty, uh, it's not a more stable, better place. So we got to think about these things. We've got to think if you want to maintain uh, our way of life, that we should be doing that responsibly in our own uh, territories, uh, you know, and, and when I say responsibly, like responsible to the people and responsible to the environment. So um, start at home, bring that into the elementary school curriculum and make sure that people understand these points from a young age there as well and get rid of that naivety that just things just appear on a store shelf um, you know, or when you throw something in the garbage, it just disappears as well. Um, these are products that have a beginning and they have an end and uh, people should understand that whole life cycle. So that's where I always tell people is start with your kids. My kids certainly got uh, an earful uh, when they were younger and are quite aware of those issues. And I think it helps us, uh, you know, understand like the Gen Z uh, generation, like my kids right now, I have an 18 year old daughter and I have a 15 year old son. Right. So uh, this is the generation that really needs to understand these views because they're going to be inheriting a world uh, that's pretty politically divided and where production is uh, heavily concentrated offshore from their perspective. I'd say get them to understand the benefits of potentially bringing more of that back and doing it properly this time so that, you know, um, they're not just looking at, um, like you said, you know, thousands of uh, unreclaimed mines here in British Columbia. Imagine what that looks like on a global basis when mm. you think that you're basically exploiting elsewhere, not cleaning up afterwards and bringing all the products here. Educate them. And uh, that should do the job. <laughs> did you see that? Well, we're, we're nearly done here, but did you see that? Did you ever watch that uh, new doc, the Idris Elba documentary from the World Gold Council? I'm wondering if uh, maybe you got to get like uh, AME or the BC Mining Association to, to make a little fancy documentary and see if uh, Idris Elba will, will show up for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not going to be me. Nobody will uh, listen to that one. So, yeah, that's. That's an awesome, it was an awesome bit of outreach, but we need to do that on a broader basis and talk mm -hmm. about, um, you know, talk about our industries as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stop being embarrassed, right? I think that's the thing is it's a lot of excuses, excuses. And again, looking at the history, it's there are some 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 bills to pay rhetorically there, but stop being embarrassed. It's a it's a it's a it's a forward looking and future facing industry. Um, yeah. Chris, final thoughts? You know, with all these things, we talked about a lot of government and, you know, there, there's this image that keeps coming into my mind and, and it's really weird. It's like it's running a marathon, right? So like you can run a marathon by yourself, right? Uh, you know, if you train hard and you work hard and you prepare hard and all this and you can actually run a marathon probably with your leg tied together with somebody else, like you're directly tied to another person and you're doing a three legged race. Well, if you're really coordinated and you try really hard, you can sort of run a marathon that way. But we got to be careful, um, you know, with changes of, of policy, like how many people can you be tied to at one time and still be able to run down the, the track together, right? Run cool. down the road together. So, you know, whatever policies are going to be in place, somebody needs to have a final decision-making capability. 
Otherwise, nothing ever gets done, right? Like in every human relationship, whether it's a family or a partnership or whatever it is, there's always a casting vote. Think about who's got the casting vote in these kind of scenarios, because if we want things to happen, we can't be bogged down in, um, you know, perpetual bureaucracy, or we can't be running down the road uh, tied to too many different people. So we've got to prioritize like who is benefiting from and impacted by things like mining projects, have that sorted out on a consultation basis at, you know, the provincial level in government, and that will make sure the projects can actually go ahead. Well, yeah, thank you, Chris. I was looking forward to this conversation and, and yeah, it was something that I, and I'm, I'm glad that I had it. It's a, enlightening and, and a lot of things new things for you to chew on too and i hope that if you're listening that you've found it similarly sort of insightful so yeah uh, thank you chris taylor for your time and, uh, and we'll talk again soon hopefully okay thanks matthew yep awesome thanks